This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Garden of Sound, I'm your host Ian Turner. Thanks for joining me today. We've got a fascinating guest for you in the form of Neil Cox, Chief Executive of the Isaac Theatre Royal. But first I'd like to thank everyone involved in the very first Garden of Sound Live. It was an amazing night at Littleton Records and it couldn't have happened without the support of creative communities, Taha Sparkling Tonic and of course you. We'll be putting a special Garden of Sound Live program to air in the coming weeks so be sure to listen out for that. Right subscriptions. If you're listening to the show online or via a podcasting app, the simplest way to never miss a show again is to subscribe. The easiest way to do this is to head to gardenofsound.nz right now and hit that subscribe button. It'll give you all sorts of exciting ways to ensure you never miss a program again. Today's guest was born in the UK but moved to South Africa when he was only 12. Stints on radio soon led to work with record companies and some big names in the music industry, including Queen. Before you know it, he's a driving force behind Canterbury's Cry TV and then spearheading the rebuild of Christchurch's Theatre Royal. This is the Garden of Sound interview with Neil Cox on 96.9 Plains FM. Can you tell me what's the first memory of music in your life? Goodness me. Um... I've got a lot to, to compliment my dad on for this because uh, it, we used to live in the UK until I was 12 um, and we had a TV and on Thursday night on, on, on BBC I was allowed to, from the age of probably like five or six, I was allowed to stay up late and, um, and there was two things that happened. At seven o'clock on a Thursday night, live on BBC One was Top of the Pops. And at nine o'clock on BBC Two, there was Monty Python's Flying Circus. So it was Thursday nights were fun nights, absolute fun nights. And um, my earliest music memory was probably it was it was watching the Beatles perform Strawberry Fields because it was a film. Obviously, it came from a movie and it was on on top of the pops. And I think I was. So, and from then I just looked at that that act, and I thought, as many people around the world did, that's changed so much stuff. And as an influence in music to begin with, that was it. Like you just look at this and go, wow, there's so much color, there's there's so much sound, there's so much influence, there's so much everything. Um, music for me. So was it that moment that made you want to get involved in music to do it yourself? Um, yeah, I think every kid wants to be in a band, don't they? Well, some don't, but I mean, um, I always thought, especially in the UK at that time, it's, it was a vibrant scene, everything was changing, and even as a, as a young kid, it was, um, there was vibrancy, and there was, it was just, everyone was talking about music. I started a record swapping club at my school, so what I used to do um, for years is we used to get uh, pocket money from mum and dad, my my brother would um, save it up and I would be like, I think it was a 50 pence or something like that. We used to get every two weeks or something after decimalization. And I used to give it, give a pound after each month to my mum who was working in a, um, close to where we lived and on the way back she went past a record shop and I'd give her a list. So I'd say, okay, can you get Alice Cooper's, um, you know, um, 
what is it, schools out or, or, or Slade, you know, Merry Christmas, everybody, whatever, you know. So it, so she'd go in with a list to the, to the record store and, and I'd buy singles, I'd buy seven-inch singles and that's what I used to do. So then I started, I had a little record player, I started to compile my own charts. I mean, it was, it was you know, full on in, yeah. Mm. So moving to South Africa, a, a big change of scene. Obviously, you've taken your love of music with you, but were you encouraged away from that or to do anything else, any other career? It was difficult times in those because we moved there in 1975 and then the state of emergency was declared in 1976. So, And, of course, it was um, you know apartheid and everything in South Africa. So music, certain music was banned um, and also bands didn't visit the country so it was really really bizarre um so suddenly coming from probably even though it was only luton in, in or in, in the uk coming from a place where they at least had a um venues and, and my first live gig ever um was queen when they just had killer queen as number one and that was 1974 and a friend of mine's um father was a security guard at the venue, so we could he could sneak us in. You were just eleven years of age yep. at this point. Wow! So that was my first live experience, seeing a gig, and and honestly, you know, there has to be uh, how fantastic Freddie Mercury was will stick with me forever, and um, and and then subsequently going back to the South African thing. There was a whole thing about Sun City when when Sun City was a place that people used to go and play in South Africa because it was almost an independent territory to South Africa, so it sort of had an excuse. Um, Queen played there four times um, just on the Works album, which would have been... It was just before Live Aid, wasn't it? So it would have been like 83 or something. I, I, I went to every show, and they're still the best, 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 best shows I've ever seen in my life. I imagine you, you must have met the band at some point. I met all of them. Um, and Freddie, I mean, I even worked on the very, very final Queen record um, when I went back to the UK after South Africa. So Innuendo was the, the last record. Massive marketing plan, obviously, and, and big involvement around the world. And then, you know, during the course of that um, that entire thing, it was announced that Freddie was ill um, and we had to go through the process of then releasing the greatest it's two afterwards and it was fantastically done i've got to say that and it's there are so many experiences but this is just one that's really come back into my head it's that it was such a well protected secret that he was indeed you know on his last legs recorded an album we knew that the band couldn't tour um we knew all that sort of stuff there'd been the videos that come out you go okay hmm, doesn't look that great um but um and then, of course, once they made the formal announcement, the next morning, it was a Monday morning and he was dead. And we had to deal with the entire process of, of putting that out to the world um, through our record labels. And it, um, that, yeah, that was massive. And then I, I think, and this will be one of the, we're talking about songs, uh, the songs that we'll play later. And it has to be one of these, which is, again, as I say, just makes so much more sense now. It, it, we had a conference with EMI, who I work for, in, in a, a European conference, and it was the, showed the video for The Show Must Go On. And it was edited together, clips from everything, and you just sort of knew, everyone sat in that room and looked at that and went, that's the end, it's definitely the end. Because there was no, I mean, he was too ill to perform in any 
videos or to do anything at that time and you just watched that and just knew and everyone just was silent afterwards going yeah we're gonna make that work um so the show must go on is um it was the final track on innuendo and it was the final track on the greatest is two um massive 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 track and for the theater here and how i work out that's pretty much our mandate the show must go on empty spaces what are we living for abandoned places i guess we know this goal on and on does anybody know what we are looking for another hero another mindless crime behind the curtain in the
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Neil Cox on 96.9 Plains FM. How do you feel about tracks being released uh, posthumously? I, I have two feelings on this. One, one in the real positive light. If the artist has created it and has subsequently died and it's been found, the artist still created it, so probably wanted it to be heard somewhere. Or if it was covered up in a place where it shouldn't be heard, that's a whole different story. So someone's found it. For me, it de- then depends who's found it and what, what happens with it. So um, a lot of the key things for me is that if posthumous tracks are released, maybe it should be not to the record company's benefit. It should be more to probably, you know, the proceeds of that should go to something absolutely specific that maybe the artist's estate left behind and said, okay, it needs to go to that charity or or that artist or, or, or that whatever. It should. I think it should be something that's in the estate. And, and because, you know, the music and the film industry is so rich in certain ways, sometimes there are people who want to take a little bit away. And that, uh, so as long as the tracks are fantastic, I have no issue. I mean, Queen had Made in Heaven, which was uh, an album that came out about four years after Freddie died, and there were some amazing tracks on there. Yeah. Are there any other artists or groups, perhaps any other tracks that have been released after the death of a uh, band member, which you could... I think with the Beatles side of things, and it was was interesting... Um, having been so influenced by them when I was a kid, then the process of, when were we talking now? It was to uh, 1991, 1990, no, no, 1993, I think it was, and they released Anthology, which was a process of three double rec- double CDs that came out, double records that came out, and there were two new tracks on that. So one of the, they sort of, one of them was absolutely a new track, one of them, Real Love, John Lennon had re- recorded separately anyway. So going posthumously here, I think it's the best example of the fact that the three Beatles, three remaining Beatles at that time, because now there's only Ringo and Paul, um, got together, pulled out those tracks, and it was John's vocals. Um, and then they mixed it with George Martin and did everything that was done in the way that the Beatles do things. And the track that came out was Free as a Bird. And the story was quite amazing because it was under absolute secrecy. So no one could hear this stuff. So at the time I was working in South Africa, but I know from other countries around the world that it was all about you couldn't get an advanced cassette, you couldn't get anything, you couldn't listen to the track. So you you had to send someone over to the UK to pick up the master recordings or, or, or you your, you know, your um, uh, things that you make CDs with, right? Yeah, so I can't remember what they were called. Um, it had a really interesting name, I'll remember. Anyway, but it's, um, and that, so they, so, so from Australia flew someone over to the UK, South Africa flew someone over to the UK. They walked into Abbey Road, were given, and literally got back on a plane and flew back. And then it was such a marketing opportunity because it was the first Beatles new recording that had been released in you know 20 years uh, more 25 years so so to be able to create that from the record company side of things there would we had journalists at the airport 
you know, here's the tapes sort of thing coming off, off, off the plane. It was like the World Cup coming home, almost. Yes, almost. Yeah, 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 no, exactly. Well, yeah, almost, almost, almost. Um, but, and then, of course, what we had to do was we couldn't play it to ourselves either. So we had to find a studio to go into that would actually load these reels to be able to play and then we could invite the journalists down. So you'd have this gathering of like 30 people in the studio with, with a guy who just presses green button, off it goes. And all of you are listening to that track for the very first time. And it, those are crazy things. It made the newspapers. I mean, I think we even did a, a cartoon strip in one of the newspapers. It was like the guy went over, was then drawn in a cartoon and arriving, going over the Abbey Road, coming back coming back to the you know to um the airport in Johannesburg and and here it is free as a bird so um and that's a fantastic track it was it was it epitomized everything that the Beatles did experimental interestingly produced the voices and the harmonies so yeah amazing amazing
the Garden of Sound interview with Neil Cox on Plains FM 96.9. Neil, I want to ask you about your biggest learning opportunity or learning curve in the industry, whether that's as a, as a programmer or a promoter or working for a record company, something you'd never do again. Um, it's really hard. This, I'm sorry this, to say this to you, but it's really hard to do your own festivals. You need a team of people. You absolutely need a team of people. I think it's... it's it, you know, on on paper it looks fabulous, and you go like, all I need is ten thousand people. Work out the ticket price, off we go. Just need to line up a band, but it's so much work. And I think it's it's um, it's you know largely with with what we did with Southern Amp over the years here. Um, tell tell me first about Southern Amp. Mm. What was the um, what was the model? What was the idea with that? It, when I came back from Australia in two thousand five, um, a uh, Friend, well, a friend, and now a friend of mine had, had, had gone in touch and said, look, we want to do this and come over to see me in Sydney. We think it's a really good idea. Um, I was like, yep, I think it could be a good idea. It was just around about the time when the internet was changing over nicely. So we're talking end of 2005. Um, it's, it's like that thing. You always think that people are going to get it immediately. And the first one was hard work, really hard work. But we brought in acts from Australia and, and obviously a really good New Zealand lineup as well. Um, gave it a rest in 2006, came back in 2007 um, and did it at the old Jade Stadium. I think we had something like 8,000 people there, which was was great, but it should have been 10. Um, great lineup. What you learn is that once you start the ball rolling, it's really hard to stop it rolling. So it involves so many people. So there'll be times when I'd be getting up at three o'clock in the morning just to book flights because I knew there was a sale on or whatever and, and things like that because it, what, what most other festivals are doing and have done very, very well these days have huge teams of people um, working with them and mostly my learning was not to do that myself. Um, and then, you know, things changed with the, we did 2008 as well, which we did out at the old uh, Westpac uh, Trust, um, Horncastle Arena now. Set it up as a festival area, which four stages, you know, 40 bands, just crazy stuff. I mean, you literally... All within the one space? Or around the space as well. So we had a, a Ministry of Sound were involved, so we had a Ministry of Sound tent. We had a, a local um, stage, which was humming. It was fantastic, you know, just not local, a New Zealand stage. And then we had a local stage, which was just parked around there where people could just wander around and see the artists on at that time. So it was just, what I realize now is that it's, it, it becomes an obsession. It becomes a passion that you just continually drive and drive and drive and drive and drive. And look, at the end of the day, you can win money and you can lose money. But you can also work for an entire year and just break even. And you're like, okay, why have I done that? <laughs> so is it worth it? Oh, absolutely for the experience. I mean, absolutely. And then at the end of the day, yes, it was. But, you know, then things change, earthquakes happen, blah, blah, blah. And it just, um, it just all sort of... I think that the energy that needs to go into it, it it's, you, you've got to support a bunch of people who are involved um, from production and... and um, um, you know, uh, catering, blah, 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 everyone, venues and whole thing. But it's really, again, down to the artists and it's you, it's picking that lineup. And for any festival anywhere, 
you need that top act. And unfortunately, what those top acts are commissioning around the world now is ridiculous money. So what you're what you're seeing is a change in in the festival game in Australia here, you know, Europe, whatever. It's 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 where you've got large organisations swallowing up festivals, which is probably not the worst way to go because then at least you're going to your punters are going to be guaranteed of the best lineups. Um, but what my days in the record industry gave me was was trust from the uh, agents and the promoters to provide us those acts. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, no no regrets at all. It was just so much hard work. And um, and then you know, it's it it then becomes okay. Well, how hard can you work, and how many years can you work and do this? And and you know, and then Christchurch changed. So it, it sort of. What's the best festival in the world that you've been to? Best festival in the world. Glastonbury by far, but I've got to say Bluesfest is amazing. Where is that? It's, so that's in Byron Bay. It's every Easter weekend in um, in just um, south of Brisbane. And um, it's it's just different. It's a five-day festival. It's And, you know, at my age now, I don't want to necessarily mosh pit down with, you know... A, a, you know, it's done that already, um, but it's it, it's beautifully set out. So you can you can buy a five day ticket, you can buy a one day ticket, a two day ticket, a three day ticket, whatever you want to do. There are various acts who play. They might play on the Thursday and then play on the Sunday. So you get two opportunities to see them if you want to see them. And there's always great headliners. So this year there was Robert Plant, there was Seal, there was um, uh, Lionel Richie, and it's a nice sort of mix with Nile Rogers and all that sort of stuff going on as well. It was a nice mix of music and some awesome, awesome like discoveries, which is which is what it's all about. Um, so it's it's you know it's never going to be the Rolling Stones, it's never going to be um, Paul McCartney or anything like that. Um, but it's a massive mix of, of just fantastic blues and roots and everything, which is which is just brilliant. And then you can wander around. It's awesome um, food stalls. Everything's just really helpful. It can rain, but there we go. So does Glastonbury. Um, and it's just on a gorgeous pl- plot of land in a really, really, really lovely part of Australia. So it's a, it's a good one to go to and easy to get to, which is not too bad. But Glastonbury as a festival is something quite iconic because they do get the iconic acts so you will have you two you will have paul mccartney you will have that stuff you know so you talk about discoveries mm. is there anyone that you've discovered <laughs> that we would know about here at little old christchurch yeah i think there was um or help to launch well know? i mean we had the the christchurch music industry trust here for um for 10 years which is just um sort of done its dash so that's fine as well so a lot of artists who have, have moved through Christchurch in the last three years had had a degree of involvement with with chart which was was all about the vision for chart was was creating and sustaining a local music industry so that um, there would always be you know mentoring sessions um, discussions about how you do APRA discussions about how whether you should have a manager, whether you should have an accountant and things like that. So we do all those sorts of things. And then stage every year, we stage Chartfest, which was all Christchurch artists um, if, if, or even vaguely connected with Christchurch. Uh, and we got that um, up and running for two or three years at the town hall. And then again, we had earthquakes. So, but we were the first, Chart was the first organization to put on a festival, which was done at the old Polytech then, 
we did that in music month of 2011 just for three months after the earthquake so so and and so we, we we would fund that and we would have funding from various organizations so there's actually a plethora of artists who've come out of that which were you know um nadia reed who was involved uh, mel parsons um goodness uh, and bands changed so much over the over the time but we'd always there was a degree of respect. So personally, probably no. But as, as, as my involvement within Chart, we, we, we gave them a platform to just find something more than struggling around. And of course, this is all before everything went digital and now they manage themselves. But it, was, it, was a, it, it, it felt really good to do that stuff. Tell me about Cry TV. Why did you want to get involved with that? <laughs> that was when I first arrived here. That was a fascinating place. My gosh. Um, I'll keep the story short, but I, I, a, an email arrived to me in South Africa one day, in the early days of email, basically saying that a, a company in Christchurch were looking for world music style videos and something, so they were going around. To, so I was like, so because I was in South Africa, we had a label there called CCP, which had all the fabulous like South African um, black music on it, which was just like they would sell masses. It was just all on cassettes. They would all be on cassettes. So be like, yeah. So can I just jump back? Yeah, yeah. You as a twelve-year-old coming from the yep. UK to South Africa, and you talk about the fabulous music over yep. there, and a lot of it not being allowed to be sold. Uh, how did you get a hold of it? Um, well, I was just like deprived, <laughs> deprived of music. Um, there used to be sort of. Um, there was a record store called um, Hillbrow Records, and there was another one which was just next door to the university that I eventually went to that used to import um, vinyl that was banned. Um, so, and it would always be under the counter. So you'd go in and say, "Have you got the Sex Pistols?" They'd be like, "Yes." Close the door. Bang. There you go. So, um, so, and you were deprived of gigs because there was nothing. There was nothing. Everything was changing in the UK. So what happened is I went to university and and um, studied engineering first year and. I didn't fail horribly, but I did fail. Um, and then repeated and passed. And then second year, I was like, okay, good. And someone had come to me. And I'd, I used to do a part-time job in, in, in the university holidays of putting up posters in record shops. It was like a big thing, point of display. It was massive. You know, you display it and you'd actually, to a degree, buy a space in, in the shop. So I'd go around and hang posters and create things. And then, um, and then after... Um, after that sort of not wanting to do engineering period, um, the local radio station at the university were, they put out a student notice to say they were looking for new DJs. And I was like, that is so me. I'm so going to do that. And it, it was perfect because I knew the record companies, some of the record companies, so I could, and then it eventually developed into a program manager role. And So you were creating your own charts. As a indeed, 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 indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe a little record. Player. I know, yeah. Had my own lunchtime show and breakfast show as well and, you know, and, and all those sorts of things. So, um, and it was brilliant because it was the change of the guard in music as well. So it was, uh, it was the, you know, mid-80s and, and, and it was just, there was so much crazy stuff coming out of the UK so it was um and it was all the stuff that students loved so so it was was interesting so it was and because the university it was even in apartheid South Africa at that time it had its own um security situation so the police weren't allowed to come onto campus because it was multiracial it was a multiracial campus um and then 
there was the, the, the flag burning, which I think was 1984 or something like that, or 82, I can't remember off the top of my head. And that's when, the only time when the South African you know, armed forces came into and tear gas and stuff like that. So, so it was a fascinating place to be, but, but ultimately my, I went back to the UK and my, the work that I'd done through the record companies there created a job for me in, in South Africa with, with uh, WA Music and then ended up being transferred back to the UK for that. So, so it's, and then I got to the UK and suddenly every gig you want to see anywhere um, and you know that sort of I suppose reinstilled a bunch of um, lost lost gigs for mm. many years. Yeah. So you're talking about the world music that came out. Of yes. Of South Africa. Yep. You'd obviously made it back to South Africa at this point. Uh, yes. So that what happened then? I, so after eight years and back in the UK, then I I was sort of looking for a change. I was working with the world as opposed to working in the UK. So all the stuff I was working on was being promoted into the world as opposed to um, um, into the UK. So sort of like you know, needed a change. And then an offer came up in, in South Africa to go back for four years. So I did that. Uh, and of course, that was eight years after I'd left. So go back in a completely different situation. Um, Nelson was out. Rainbow Nation. Everything was free and happy. And uh, um, so it was exciting times. And um, and then ultimately it was ended up in, in New Zealand. Um, but in the interim, the Cry TV thing had developed because I knew I was leaving South Africa. But it's one of those things that pops up in your email. And you go, hang on a minute, that's really interesting. <laughs> Music TV station in Christchurch? No way. And it was... Um, I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. And they were looking for world music clips. And we had an excellent artist called Brenda Fassi in, in, um, in South Africa who was just massive. So we sent one of the video clips to them to just to have a look at it. And they're like, we so want to include that. Anyway, long story cut short, I ended up here and started contracting with CryTV. Cry TV was amazing. I mean, it was, it was the days when you would get when record companies would literally send you master clips of videos and then you'd have to digitize it with the artist name or whatever and the CryTV logo. So we had a guy who used to, who's sadly no longer with us, used to do all that sort of stuff. Um, we had a sales team of two people going out because obviously the station would only exist with, with advertising. But some of the best TV presenters who we still have came out of that. Petra. Petra. Yeah. Um, and we've got Darcy who's on Radio Sport yep. so he's still on there Chris's brother uh, Jason yes Jason Farfoy yep. Yep. and also Matt Thomas who was the original bassist with the feelers was our guy who worked the desk for all the videos yeah. so um, Bridget who used to be on She's with uh, ZM yeah yeah and uh, Francesca who used to be who does the film stuff so it all came out of Cry TV and some days I'm not joking we used to, we used to point an aerial up to the beacon on on the port hills so that the signal could go out but it was it was just a fascinating place and then mtv came along and just stuffed it all up but yeah and then mtv new zealand only lasted a year and it sort of end, everything ended anyway but there were the days of max tv as well in auckland like these were that was fat people were just you know music fans would go home and switch on the tellies at you know, two o'clock in the morning and, and there'll always be music on so it was, it was brilliant. So there's been uh, a lot of great music over the years that's sort of uh, gone through your ears and into your consciousness. Uh, do you have a, a favourite piece of music or at least something which has sort of stuck with you uh, for a while? 
There's always there's always favourites, and I mean you, just like that thing you get so much in your iPhone these days, and you. Spotify's and you go, oh, I haven't listened to that for ages. Um, you know, and outside of the Beatles and Queen that we've spoken about, um, I've been privileged to work on stuff like Radiohead and Coldplay in the early days. Um, I saw Radiohead's, I think, second London gig um, before even Creep was anywhere. Um, and then Country Moving happened. And um, they're a band that always constantly surprise me and they're so amazing live and if people haven't seen them live hopefully they might get down here again next year because they're doing a north american tour and a canadian tour um and i'm i'm on a waiting list because i'm actually off to montreal on on on, on monday because uh, there's a conference over there i'm going to and uh, they're playing in montreal it's just so coincidental um and I'm on a waiting list for a ticket. Yeah, yeah. I think I'll probably get it. Um, but the beauty of them is their instrumentation. And it's that going back to that thing of, of, of if a band can't do it live, they're not a band. You know, it's, it's just their music. They've got to do it live. And the instrumentation and the, the whatever you know, they do on stage is it's encapsulating. Um, so when OK Computer came out, because we'd been... The Pablo Honey was in the UK and was involved in that. Like Europe sort of got it and then Creep was a hit. Um, the Benz came out and I was in South Africa then, which is just a, you know, it's one of those albums that you put on from the beginning to the end and you listen to every track and it's perfect. And then OK Computer came out and it was really interesting because I um, I'd, I'd, I did a stint with um, EMI New Zealand here in Auckland for about a year and the album was on its tail end at that point so i mean i bought it day one i mean i was like this is so obvious but they did a very similar thing to what we spoke about with the beatles and um where they they got the master tape and and, and, and then they took it into um the studios i think we called air studios and something in auckland and played it to a bunch of journalists and everyone was like mm, where's the single and and it wasn't about that at all because the album was so perfectly constructed and it wasn't about singles because there was even a you know, they were even saying at that point that their videos are going to be probably might make some, might not. Um, but some of the greatest Radiohead tracks came out of that record. And I remember that at that time, Melody Maker or Enemy in the UK called it the greatest British album of all time. And and it still is something that if I just want to go to sleep at night and put my iPhone on, I'll get through to like track six and I'm asleep. But roundabout track eight, I think, is a track called Crash. And it's, it's, it was never a single. It's something they never play live. Um, and I hope maybe one day they will. Um, because it is just one of those beautifully constructed, fabulous songs. And uh, so, yeah, I'm uh, yeah, I'll Radiohead until the day I die. And they are a band that I've never met. So, I mean, yeah. I've just, you know, it's just been that occasion sort of thing. It's, but I know they, many people have. They played... At Warner's Hotel. It was like when Faith No More came and played in the Caledonian Hall in 1993. I know. About 600 people or however. Yeah. You just don't. It's No. And we don't have those venues anymore. And they'll never come back. Because it's, it's you know, they were dodgy old venues. You know, they were really, it's where live music was. It's, you know, it, it, it and so far away as well. It's that thing. I mean, when you go back to London or you go to the States and you go to those crazy tiny music venues that are, you know got no air conditioning and are sweaty and hot and you that's what it's about that's what it's about and if the and the acts that come up from those 
from working hard, like acts like Oasis who who used to go round, like before they got their first album out, they used to go round and play in, in different towns in, in the UK. And after the gig, they'd immediately put a poster up outside the venue to say they'll be back in four weeks. So they just kept touring and touring and touring. So it built and built and built every single time. And that's why it became so big. Um, so it, it's, it's, it, it's the effort that goes in for the rewards that come out, but the effort has to go in. And that's why the best live bands in the world are, they've toured endlessly.
What's your best musical memory and throughout all of time or the most rewarding project you worked on? Well, I didn't work on it, but I was there. I was at Live Aid. So, and I'd been in the UK because I'd left South Africa in 85 um, and literally had been in London for about four weeks and some mates of mine had been there before and managed to queue up and get tickets. So, so yeah, I was at Live Aid and that, that hasn't been much to top that. Um, to see, you know, opening with the Boomtown Rats and then, or, or I can't remember who opened it, Status Quo opened, yeah, rocking all over the world. Boomtown Rats, and then to see Bowie, to see Queen, to see Elton, to see, uh, it was just, just spectacular. Uh, and U2, I mean, that, I think the U2 did a four song set and it was um, sort of homecoming. It was... Um, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, New Year's Day, and then Bad, which was just sublime. And it was, and the, the the whole feeling around that stadium that day was just amazing, absolutely amazing. And for someone who'd been gig deprived for, for so long, to actually be, and to be there and see everybody pretty much you wanted to see all in one go was just like, okay, this is it. And it was great. And then, you know, you got home and, and New York followed on afterward. So it was it was just brilliant. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. So by far. All the way from Wembley to Christchurch, mm. New Zealand, your general manager of the Isaac Theatre Royal. Yep. Uh, what's, the, what's the best gig you've seen here? Chris Cornell was just insane. Um, and even so, more so now. Um, he's not with us. Uh, it was just one of those where you... It was an acoustic set and it was it was just him and the best lineup of guitars behind him that you you know honestly would ever see. Um I love Big Runger and I think um she's you know, she performed here two years ago and still some of the most amazing songs to come out of Christchurch. Um to see Neil Finn here was I've worked with Neil on I've worked with Neil in pretty much every country I've lived in. So and I know he's worked with a lot of people and he's and he's off with Fleetwood Mac soon, so that's gonna be amazing. But um, here's a question for you. Yeah. Do you know who the other person that they interviewed for the job was? Oh no, I don't. I think so what they're saying, because what they knew after Lindsay had sort of there was something going on, wasn't there, obviously like Probably wasn't going to be paid. Oh, no, no, going to pay him enough money. Um, so, so they bought in the guy from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and then realised that they do need another voice as well as a guitar situation because Lindsay was quite special. So, as far as we know, I mean, it's what's being said, at, you know, in the industry that we understand is that there was a, just a phone call. And someone, and that and Neil had done some jamming with Fleetwood Mac or something like that, but you know you can't take it away from the guy. He's amazing, absolutely amazing. That that there are, um, you know, some of the best songs to come out of New Zealand and and Australia that hit the world stage, and you know, a very simple thing that we know about now is that the first crowded house single in America was something so strong. And on the flip side was Don't Dream It's Over. And some DJ flipped it over and said, B-side's way better. There you go. Set it up. It's history. Yeah.
So seeing Neil, Liam and everyone perform here on this stage was quite special. So what's next for uh, for Neil Cox? You're going to be here for a while? Have you got any other dreams, plans? I think, you know, it, it, I've been here nearly 10 years now and it's, it's, um, it's time, I think, to have a look around. Um, the venue's doing fantastic, uh, which we're, we're quite happy about. Um, there's a lot of change in the city going through the rebuild and um, which was sort of not my forte, but we got we got it done. So to come from um, managing a theatre that was sort of in, felt like it was in the back streets of the city and everyone sort of sort of knew where it was, but didn't go there very often. So my initial mandate was to put to put content in and to um, increase the number of usage days. So we did that spectacularly up until the earthquakes and then, of course, three and a half years of rebuild and, and making that decision. Um, and, and now almost four years of being reopened. It's, it's yeah, I, I feel really comfortable that um, that um, at my tender age of 55 um, that there's, there's other things out there and I'd yeah, like to have an investigation, but it won't be a festival. What track do you want to take us out with today, Neil? I've got a choice, really, um, and I think it. I was gonna, I was gonna choose a Coldplay track, but I think actually, it's only because stuff I worked on. But I'd really like to go back to to Beckrunger, and I think from that, from that incredibly difficult second record where, where it was almost canned like three times or something like that, what came out of that second record is just amazing. So yeah, something good, definitely, because something good. It's always, it's always going to come your way, yeah? And that's the way, and for you too. Just want to know ya Just want to talk to ya I want to hear about your day I'd never leave ya Never be mean to ya I'll always let you
Thanks so much for joining me today. This week's guest was Neil Cox, Chief Executive of Christchurch's Isaac Theatre Royal. If you'd like to listen to any of the songs played today, or in fact any of the artists Neil talked about, then please head along to gardenofsound.nz and click on Neil's photo on the front page. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm Ian Turner, and this has been Garden of Sound.